Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down and chat to Dr. Kelly Yakula from the Dolphin Research Center in the Florida Keys, among other things. Welcome to the pod, Kelly. Thanks, Hazel. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to chat to you about all things dolphin and dolphin research. Um, But for those of my listeners who maybe don't know who you are or aren't familiar with uh, your work, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, As Hazel said, I'm Dr. Kelly Akala. I'm the Director of Research at the Dolphin Research Center in the fabulous Florida Keys. And my research is on dolphin cognition. So how dolphins think and learn, and also on cognitive welfare. So the importance of challenging their minds in order to enhance their well-being. It's so unbelievably important. And can I just say, freaking interesting. Like learning all things cognition with regards to dolphins and how that can be applied in our work settings. Absolutely. The sky is the limit, but where did it all start for for you? When did you first start getting interested in dolphins? Well, hmm, let me think. You know, I've always been fascinated by how minds work, mind, human minds, non-human minds, etc. And so in college, I gravitated to psychology, which is where you study how minds work. And I ended up in graduate school actually studying uh, chimpanzees and human children. So I did studies on things like how human kids learn language and how chimps learn their communicative gestures and how both chimps and human children uh, learn by watching others. And then in the middle of all that, I heard a talk by a scientist named Peter Tyack who is a biologist who studies how uh, dolphins and whales communicate. And he gave this really interesting talk about what are called signature whistles. And what those are, he was claiming, were basically names that the dolphins use to announce themselves and to call each other. And as a psychologist, I thought, wow, that's really awesome. Really? They have these symbolic names that they're using for each other. But I also thought, you know, Actually, he doesn't necessarily have strong enough data to make such a strong claim, because that really is a a very strong claim in terms of the mechanisms that we think are going on in the mind there. So why not? I wrote to him and I basically said that. I said, hey, here's who I am. Uh, I heard this talk that you gave. Sounds fascinating. I don't think you have the data to quite say it. This is my background. I think I know how we can get that data. Are you looking for a postdoc? And he wrote back with, absolutely, let's start working together. So we wrote some grants. We spent a few years coming up with this wonderful study, went to various dolphin facilities to sell them on it, et cetera, and ended up doing a very cool study that was was an abysmal failure. Absolutely (laughs) did not work. But by that time, the damage was done. I was completely hooked on dolphins, and I've basically been here ever since. I love that. Can I just say right just writing to someone straight up and being like hey I'm super interested in this I want to get involved more people 
needs to have that attitude when it well yeah because he certainly wasn't going to discover me sitting in my you know dorm room by myself so it had to go the other way yeah I mean this podcast is obviously called no such word as can that is a quote that came from my mother who I think is the best woman in the world and one of her other quotes was always if you don't ask you don't get absolutely so it all started for you. That's what sparked it. Uh, where did you go from the those first projects on Signature Whistles? What what was it like getting involved with the world of dolphins? Was it so different to what you'd been doing before that it just hooked you? It was completely different from what I've been doing. So what I've been doing before was working with, as I said, human children and chimpanzees, both of which are animals a whole lot like me right? So they have hands and they have legs and they walk around and they've got eyes on the front of their head and they move their mouths when they make noises, right? So I can pretty easily interpret what they're doing. Dolphins, that's, none of that is true for dolphins, right? You can't even tell which one is, is making a sound and they certainly don't have arms and legs and they've got eyes on the sides of their heads. Uh, so they literally see the world differently. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to one of the one of the places, actually the place where we did that first failed study was the Dolphin Research Center in the Florida Keys. And at the time, they the research uh, paradigm they used is they had a lot of outside researchers come in and do research, but they didn't have their own established research program. Uh, but as I in the research, we sort of struck up a friendship, and what ended up happening is. Huh. At the time, as, so as I was doing this, my, my uh, academic career was progressing. And so I ended up being an assistant professor at Boston College, uh, looking at, at children. But at the same time, I was doing this dolphin research sort of on the side. And my daughter had the good fortune to be born right in September, which in an academic calendar is perfect because that gives me the whole semester off, right? So I had that whole semester off. And then when I came back after Christmas, I said to all of my colleagues, hey, how was your break? And all of them to a person said, it was great, I got a lot done. Nobody said, I spent time with my family, I went to a cool party, I you know, did something fun. It was, well, I didn't have to teach, so I got a lot done. And I thought, okay, I'm not in love with that, uh, but I was <laughs> very much in love with the dolphin research that I was doing. And so I uh, talked to the folks down at DRC and they loved the research I was doing too. And they basically created a position for me, an in-house scientist that they didn't have before. And we grew from there. And my job uh, is to, basically I'm one of the few people in the world whose job it is to figure out how dolphins think, which is very cool. So we do a lot of, hmm, I wonder, and then try it. Yeah. What was it like taking that leap and moving down to the Keys permanently? Well, I actually didn't move down to the Keys permanently for a long time. Uh, I did most of my work remotely for until for all, my daughter is now 21. Until she went to college just a couple of years ago, I did my work remotely and only came down to the Keys a few times a year because, of course, as a scientist, I'm not a trainer. I We have wonderful trainers down here. And so I do my work, which is largely on the computer, anywhere. So I didn't have to be in the Keys. And so um, I only just moved permanently to the Keys less about two years ago. Um, and it's a culture shock. Uh, you know, the Keys, 
If you've never been to the Florida Keys, they're beautiful. It's absolute paradise. But if you want to, you know, buy sneakers or a pair of jeans, you maybe need to drive two hours to the mm -hmm. mainland. And so, <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, what was that like, actually? You're you kind of straddling living in a different state and doing everything remotely. What was that like with being able to liaise with the trainers? Because uh, obviously my experience with research comes from being on the training side of things. Right. What was it like? Because I think a lot of people don't quite understand that teamwork that it takes between the researchers and the trainers to be able to make this these projects work. Are you looking for animal themed gifts for this Christmas? Or do you want a personalized piece of art to remember your favorite animal? Then you need to check out the art of Amy Michelle. From owl prints to humpback whale stickers and even painted Christmas tree ornaments, she has something for everyone. Visit her Etsy store or social media at Art of Amy Michelle. Putting beauty in the world, one piece of art at a time. Absolutely. And let's just talk about how we end up doing that, right? Because as I said, my background had been working with chimps and with, and with kids. And so I would come to the folks at DRC and say, hey, I have this great idea for a project. And they'd be like, okay, there are dolphins, right? <laughs> so, we, so we need to adapt a little bit. And we were very fortunate, I think, in that the people that I have worked with and we sort of grown up doing this together, um, we all came from it came to it from different perspectives. Mm. And we were always very good at, I think, taking into account someone else's perspective. So I would say, for example, okay, from the science side, I need X, Y, and Z to happen. And I need this other thing to never happen until we get to testing, right? Mm -hmm. Because typically with cognitive studies, we talk about it as training the game without training the answer. Mm -hmm. And so, and then you test for the answer. And then we'd have someone whose job is to, you know, make the apparatus and they'd say, okay, well, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't. It needs to be dolphin safe, uh, et cetera. And then the trainers would say, okay, well, can I do this? And can I do that? Um, and so we sort of learned together how to put that into practice. And I will tell you though, that no matter how well we planned what we thought was going to happen, you know, they say a battle plan only lasts until battle starts mm -hmm. and i think it's the same thing with cognitive research with dolphins is you have your plan until you get to the first dolphin and then they say well no i'm going to do it some other way or <laughs> i don't want to play your research game today or whatever it is and then you you pivot you know mm -hmm. our our motto is is semper gumby always flexible <laughs> i love it there's definitely you know i think there's a lot of challenges in working for research and in training for research but what I really love about it is that we both learn from each other yeah. um and the things that as trainers that we're learning through doing is specifically cognitive research you know training really challenging and interesting things for our animals it's allowing us to be better trainers I think so I, I I think we talk about it as you know being cognitively enriching both for the trainers and for the animals mm. because it's it's new. By definition, it's new, right? Science isn't just doing the things you already know how it's going to turn out. We're giving it our best guess and then adapting. And so are the animals. What are some of your favorite, because you spoke earlier about uh, failures in, yeah. in training research. And, you know, I think every 
training project, every research project has some failures. And obviously you're going to have some small and some massive. What are some memorable failing moments that you've well, seen? Well, let me tell you about that. First, let me tell you about that first one. Right. And so in the, the very first one I did, which was probably the biggest failure we've had, the idea with signature whistles. So dolphins, what we know about them is they make an individually distinctive whistle that they use to announce themselves. So they'll make that whistle over and over. And then sometimes they'll make another animal's whistle. And so the thinking had been, okay, they're using them to announce themselves. And when they copy another animal's whistle, they're calling it. That was the thinking. But what we didn't know back then is whether or not the dolphins actually had any sort of mental representation of the animal whose signature whistle it belonged to. So for example, the reason the name Rob is a name is because when I hear that name, I can bring to mind other representations of my friend Rob, right? Him walking down the street or what he looks like or, or that sort of thing. And there was no indication that dolphins could do that at that period of time. We didn't know, for example, if they heard a whistle, could they match it to a visual replication? All right, so back in my earlier days, I had worked on, uh, I had run a lab that used something called intermodal preferential looking. And it sounds big, but basically what it is, is if you show a human baby two television screens side by side, and you play different things on those screens. So for example, on one side, it might be hands clapping, right? On the other side, it might be uh, a slinky moving back and forth. You play both visuals, you play the audio that matches one of them, and the babies will look longer at the TV that it matches. And that you can also do that when they get older, you can do this with language too. So you can say, oh, look, Cookie Monster is tickling Big Bird. And once they're old enough, they will distinguish which TV is showing that. Mm. So I thought, that's great. Why don't we do this with dolphins, right? What we can do is show them videos of two different dolphins that they know. We can play the signature whistle that goes with one of them, mm -hmm. and then they can watch that. We had several different issues. First of all, our dolphins uh, are in natural sea water lagoons. And at the time, I say our, at the time I was not working for mm -hmm. DRC. I was, I was outside. Uh, but they had never seen screens before. They had never seen televisions and they could not have been any less interested. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking all they have to do is watch TV and they were trying to figure out what they were supposed to do. So one of the dolphins would spin in a circle, one would bring it seaweed. They were trying to figure out what do I do? So through repetition and creativity of the trainers, they eventually got the dolphins to just stay in front of the TVs, don't do anything. So then there's a question of, well, where are they looking? And what we didn't know is whether dolphins would turn to the side to, to look directly on at each mm. of the TVs or whether they would turn and just look at with one eye. Mm -hmm. But what trainers had told us is, well, we can always tell when the dolphin directly at us, right? So what we did is we had two cameras, one on top of each television so that we could see when the dolphin was looking directly at that TV. Mm. Great, now we're all set ready to science. We did it. Turned out uh, dolphins can watch both TVs at the same time. <laughs> Which is nothing we, I, when you're talking about humans, you don't think like mm -hmm. that. Um, so that was my favorite failure. I love that. I think that's fantastic. And it's such a perfect example of, okay, we have this idea. Let's plan for it. Okay. Let's troubleshoot it. Okay. Let's train it. And then you do it. And it's like, oh, 
yeah something (laughs) something completely different happened that we didn't expect you know that's just part and parcel of what we do um on the flip side major successes breakthroughs lots of so many interesting findings that have come out of your work specifically what are some of your highlights or favorites I have to say to this day well actually I have two favorites one of them was a study that we did on blindfolded imitation so what does that even mean well imitation we all know what that is and uh before I get into that I should note for your listeners that there is a misconception that a lot of people believe that all animals imitate, et cetera. That's not true. Imitation is very rare in the animal kingdom, but dolphins do. Dolphins do copy each other. And so uh, one of my colleagues and I were at a conference once and, you know, having a drink as you do at a conference and we're just sitting around talking. And what we were talking about is what else can we do with eye cups? Now, eye cups are basically suction cups that fit over dolphins' eyes. They can blink them off if they want to. So it's voluntary, like, like everything that we do. And we were trying to figure out, well, what we normally do is we'll throw out a, a ring and so that they can demonstrate echolocation for the guests, et cetera. And as we're talking, we're like, huh, I wonder if they can imitate if they're blindfolded. Let's try. Again, I wonder if, let's try. And so we did, and unlike most of our studies where we sit and we plan and then we train and we try to figure out how to get the dolphins to understand what the game is, et cetera, they got this like that, like within one session. Now our dolphins already knew how to imitate. So that part wasn't mm-hmm. being trained, but as far as, okay, let's put one eye cup on, let's put another eye cup on. And the first dolphin that we did it with Tanner within six trials, he was like, oh, that's what you want. Okay, I've got it. Uh, and so that was that was definitely my favorite. It's, it's a very visual study. It was very unexpected. And it shows that they're problem solving because we actually did a second study where we, instead of having a dolphin, um, a dolphin model it, we had a human model it. And mm-hmm. the reason was trying to figure out, okay, if they're not using sight, how are they doing it, right? There, we know that they're probably using sound, but with dolphins, that comes in two flavors. One is, can they recognize the sound of the behavior, just like you could recognize the sound of hands clapping, or are they turning and echolocating? Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, if we have, if we put a person in the water to demonstrate the behaviors, it'll sound different to them. So I wonder if they'll do anything different. And what we found is that indeed, when we had a person in the water, they were more likely to turn and echolocate as opposed to just recognizing the sound, which means they were problem solving. They knew what we wanted Mm -hmm. and they were problem solving to that. Although that actually brings up another failure because uh, (laughs) the the dolphin that was the best at this, Tanner, um, when we tried to get him to be the model instead, he would model it just like we asked him to, but then if the imitating dolphin started doing something different, Tanner would change to what the imitator, like, no, no, we're supposed to be doing the same things. And so it was really hard to get him, (laughs) no, I need you to just focus on this part. It's so so interesting, you know, when I was, I was talking about um, how cognitive research gives you so much scope for training. And it's one of those things where you you set out, you know, imitation. We also did copy research with the whales at Marineland. Right. Okay, this is our question. This is what we want to answer. It's very black and white. Can they copy each other? Okay, yes, they can. All right, where do we go from here? And then you start having more and more and more questions, which then gives you more and more and more training. Right, 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 right. 
And I think what, what I loved about that one, you know, a lot of the studies that we do, and certainly the early studies, my earliest study that worked was a study on numerical cognition, where we had them looking at, at boards that had a different number of dots and et cetera, and trying to get them to understand what we wanted was much more difficult. So what was cool about this is it's so natural to them and so obvious. And I think probably because they, they synchronize in the wild and the males display synchronously in the wild. And so this is something that they probably do. And so just being able to, to tap into that. The other thing though, and this is true across the board in our, in our cognitive studies, is that the dolphins love it. <laughs> and that really is what makes me happy. And so we have this other set of studies now on dolphin cooperation. And the way this game works is there are two underwater buttons and the two dolphins are supposed to swim across the lagoon and press those buttons at the same time, whether we send them at the same time, different times, different places, et cetera. And so at first when they conceptualize it as, oh, I'm just pressing a button, they won't necessarily wait for their partner. But then there's a learning curve and then they'll figure out, oh, I get it, we need to press at the same time. And what's great about that is when they get it right, they get super excited. Two of our boys, Delta and Reese, they would start tail walking backwards. This was a behavior <laughs> that they did not know on signal, but they just would get so excited. And so for me, we talked earlier about cognitive welfare, the idea that, that giving these animals thinking mm. games makes them excited that makes me happy. It makes me excited as well. I mean, even as trainers, you know, you see a massive increase in motivation um, and desire to participate, you know, in session when you start getting into these really co like complex cognitive sessions. You know, we were doing test sessions of 20 minutes and we were convinced like, oh, our animals are going to be so demotivated. They're not going to want to do it. And they wanted to keep going. You got right. to 20 minutes and you're like, okay, end test. And the animals are like, where are you going? <laughs> well, just... what? what? I'm in the middle of my game here. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you you touched on welfare and I want, I want to start talking a little bit more about that because I think that's another part of our industry that's becoming more and more important is to not only understand our animals' welfare, but also know how we can implement all of this research to improve our animals' welfare as well. So for some of my listeners uh, who maybe aren't familiar with the term how sure. do you define welfare for animals i think the same way i would define it for people which is their well-being right mm -hmm. and so that has several different facets to it first there is their physical well-being so are they well fed are they free from disease are they free from injury and pain etc and then there's their uh cognitive and social well-being so it's basically taking care of their needs their physical needs their social needs and their cognitive needs yeah and how do you measure that in dolphins you know you mentioned an animal that is so dissimilar to a human who has the, their behavior is different their environment is different you know most of their environments in the wild have have not been completely explored yet so how, right. how do you start trying to figure out their welfare specifically in human care. Right, so this is actually a question that is being worked on by a number of different groups looking at how can we measure it scientifically, mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's the one level of, I can look at an animal and when they're in poor welfare, that seems pretty clear. So mm -hmm. if an animal is sick, if an animal is injured, if an animal is you know, lethar way too lethargic, uh, those, those are problems. 
And so I think stress hormones, that sort of thing, the physical welfare, I think is the easier question. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about cognitive welfare, you're looking at things like, do they have a, a variability of behavior? Are they engaged? Um, are they being not being aggressive? And I don't want to I don't want to harp on that one too much because these animals aggression is common in the animal kingdom in general. And so I wouldn't want to say, well, they never get mad at each other and they never that sort of thing. That would that's not true with people. I mean, this but... this podcast is a safe space. We can oh, okay. we can we can quite easily say that every animal on this earth, whether it's a human or it's a, a someone from the animal kingdom, has the potential for aggression and Absolutely. has an aggressive repertoire. Absolutely. At the same time, if again, whether it's whether it's dolphins in a facility or kids at a daycare center, yep. if yep. there is a situation where aggression is happening a lot, mm -hmm. we want to be able to, to mitigate that and figure out what's going on uh, yeah. for, for the welfare of the animals or children and, or animals and those patients. And also for anyone listening who isn't familiar with these animals, when we talk about aggression, I think the general public immediately assume, oh my goodness, something massive. You know, for us, an aggression can be something as small as a vocal or right. an open mouth aimed at another animal without touching it. You know, the majority of aggressions, 99% of aggressions that we see, the animals aren't even touching each other. Well, right. And then when you talk about, you know, dolphins in particular, right? Like we talked about earlier, they don't have hands. The way mm -hmm. that they interact with each other is by hitting each other and raking each other. And it is mm -hmm. raking, meaning taking their teeth and rubbing their against the other one's skin, mm -hmm. which for us might be horrifying, but they've got this thick layer of blubber yep. that it's, this is how they play. It is also how they fight, mm -hmm. but it's also how they play. And so sometimes yep. finding, you know, figuring that out and not being too freaked out about it mm -hmm. um, is very important. Yeah. So what are some of the other indicators of good cognitive welfare? I, I would say when an animal, our animals look, this is going to this is going to sound anthropomorphic and I don't mean to do that, <laughs> but, but certainly when you see our animals after they get something right and they mm. make squeaky noises and they, you know, quote dance, it just looks happy in the same way that when a dog wags its tail, yeah. it looks happy. Um, and you got to be careful, though, because some people might look at dolphins in particular who have the smile on their face and mm. say, oh, aren't they always happy? They've got the mm -hmm. smile. No, no, that's that's our social signal. That's yes. not theirs. Um, and so I think this is actually an important area for future research, mm -hmm. which is how is it that we can tell? Because on the one hand, sometimes it's obvious. On the other hand, people think it's obvious whether they're novices to experts and some of them are correct and some of them are incorrect. And so I think like with anything, we need to be able to measure it more consistently yeah. than just, oh, it, it's obvious to me. Yeah. And also empirically, like having something that you can really look at really scientifically and say definitively, yes, this animal has good welfare or no, this animal has poor welfare. But going further than that, you know, I think I think a lot of trainers are very 
or people in general who support the field are nervous of, of saying anything, anything negative with regards to it, you know, and I think it's important to state that sometimes animals can go through periods of having great welfare or slightly poorer welfare, like you mentioned, you know, illnesses, I'm sure for some pregnant dolphins, they're extremely uncomfortable and they're like, I'm just not feeling great right now, you know, so that could also lead to, you know, a little dip um, in their, I'm sure, physical and probably cognitive welfare as well. So I think it's important for us to embrace it and say, you know what, if we have the results of our animals' welfare, it's all about what we do with those results. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I also think it's important to realize for anybody, whether you're, you're, whether you support zoos and aquariums or you don't, the idea that we wouldn't be talking about welfare is crazy. Mm. We talk about welfare all the time. And I think it's important that we have that conversation and we try to get better no matter where we fall on the spectrum. And to be clear, just like in any industry or situation, there is variation. There are variation in restaurants, there are variation in you know, police departments, fire departments, and there are variation among facilities mm -hmm. in how well they meet their animals' needs. And I think it's important for us as an industry and as a society to keep working on, well, how do we raise that bar and raise across the board? Yeah, and what are some of the things that you think that any facility could do to improve their animals' welfare? Well, you know what? It's sort of interesting for me. And again, physical welfare, I'm not really qualified to talk about. I'm not a veterinarian, et cetera. So, but I am, I do study cognition. And so I want to talk about that. And, and I think here's the thing is that brains were made to do things. Brains were made to solve problems, right? Real important problems in the wild. Any animal with a brain has to solve problems like how do we get food? How do we get shelter? How do we hunt? How do we escape from predators, et cetera? Really important problems. Mm -hmm. Now, we have those animals in a human care situation, whether it's in a zoo or a farm or home. And for the most part, we've solved all those problems, right? We've given them shelter. They're not getting eaten by predators. Uh, they may have a, a sort of social situations, hopefully, but they're probably as complex. They're probably more managed, et cetera. Great, we've solved all their big problems, right? Except, the question is, if they have this big machine in their head that's supposed to solve problems and we take those problems away, what is that brain supposed to do? Mm. And so I think it's important that we start looking at that and realize that just like with children, actually solving all of their problems doesn't necessarily make them happy. Mm -hmm. Instead, we need to give them situations, give them thinking games give them ways of challenging themselves mm -hmm. so that they can use those super brains that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going forward as an industry, having scientific evidence that supports our claims of, no, these animals do have good welfare and human care. They are well looked after. They are well adjusted. How important do you think that's going to be going forward? Oh, that's super important. I mean, it's, it's super important Number one, because we love the animals and we want that for them. So there's just a fact of the matter. Number two, for the optics of it, for people who may be uh, against zoos and aquariums, it's important for that too. And it's important for uh, legislators and regulators to know, okay, what is it that we do need to do 
to make sure that these animals are well taken care of because that's important. But I don't in any way think that that zoos and aquariums are the opponents there. On the mm. contrary, they're the ones that are most invested in yeah. having animals that have good lives. I think you made a really important point there as well about giving governments and legislators the information they need to make informed decisions. Yes. I think that is going to, for me personally right now, I think that is going to be the most, the most important thing that we need to focus on in the years to come. But if anyone is listening to this who wants to get involved in research or is currently studying a master's or PhD in psychology and is looking for something a little bit different to do, what would your advice be to them? Let me make sure I understand the question. Is your question, oh, sorry, <laughs> is your question, if somebody is already a researcher, how they get involved in dolphin research, or is there question, is your question for the students out there, how, how do they get to end up doing that type of research? I would probably say students. I think they need more help. <laughs> okay, absolutely. I think a couple of things. One, stay in school. This is obvious, not just, you know, an, an after school special kind of thing, but stay in school, you need to. Second, get experience. And in particular, you need experience in two different areas. One is science research, and the other one is experience with animals. And neither of those need to necessarily be with dolphins doing the exact kind of research that you want to do. You need to get experience with research in general. So volunteer in somebody's lab so that you learn what science is with animals, volunteer at a zoo or aquarium or farm or animal shelter, et cetera. And that will do two different things for you. One, it will tell you what it's actually like to yeah. do science and to work with animals because the vision that people have in their heads may not be reflective of what that experience is actually like. So that's mm -hmm. number one important. And number two, it now gives you people, it starts your network who can then write you letters of recommendation when you want to go to college, go to graduate school, get a job. Both of those things are super important. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy day to sit down and chat with me today. Thank you for being here. It's been amazing. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus, and I will catch you guys next week.